Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everyone. It is Wednesday night, and that means we are right here with you for Friends in Fiction. And we have an amazing amazing show ahead for you. I am Patty Callahan Henry, and I am not in prison. I am in a library. Sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm Mary Kay. I'm Mary Kay Andrews coming to you from a golf resort in the Florida Panhandle. <laughs> I'm Kristen Harmel coming to you from the same place I always come to you from. <laughs> Nothing interesting. And I'm Christy Winston Harvey at home. I'm so happy. <laughs> I know. This is the first time for you in a long time, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support independent booksellers, libraries, librarians, authors, readers. And today we are talking with Laura Dave about her blockbuster, a book we have all read and gone bananas over, The Last Thing He Told Me. And then for the after show, we are so excited Nancy Thayer is going to join us with her newest Summer Love, which wants me to break out singing, Summer Love, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> no, not going to do it. But they they, don't, get, no, they don't allow that at the prison? No, the prison doesn't no. allow singing. No. Except with like those little clangy cups. Um, <laughs> I'm in the library, not in prison. But before we get rolling, seriously, we pre-taped our show last week with Adriana Trigiani. And so we were not able to celebrate the astounding, the amazing Mary Kay Andrews hitting number five on the Yay! New York Times list. We are so excited. <laughs> we are so, Mary Kay, congratulations, my friend. This book is amazing. Cheers. Thank we're you. so proud of you. Cheers. We felt like all of us, including Meg Walker and Sean, I think we all felt like we hit the list, but really only Mary Kay did. I was <laughs> And you know how sometimes you wake up and you have this feeling and it takes you a minute to realize. Charting. Charting. Yeah, congrats on charting. I woke up and had this like knot in my stomach and I was like, why do I have a knot in my stomach? And I was like, wait a day. She's going to find out. <laughs> We're really excited. So. Uh, we we absolutely are. Yeah. Congratulations, Mary Kay. Um, thanks to everybody who bought the book, damn it. You, you did my yeah. bidding and I appreciate it. <laughs> Well, fantastic. All right. Well, before we um, we get to talk to Laura, um, we wanted to remind you. So a few weeks ago, we announced our partnership with a really cool new social platform called Fable, a book club app for social reading. And you all out there have responded in such an amazing way. So if you're wondering what Fable is, I'll tell you, it is a social reading app for online book clubs. Fable is a free app for your phone or tablet with loads of incredible book clubs you can join. Their mission is to deliver the world's best social experience with exceptional stories for everyone. And we have joined forces. Yep, that word. We have joined forces <laughs> with Fable to start a brand new premium book club. We are calling Friends and Fiction Behind the Book. This is an interactive book club led by us. That's right. Every single month, we will have a new book. And you'll get to join in. It's a really immersive experience. It's not just a regular book club. There's all kinds of immersive things on the back end that you can join us for. And as you read with us on Fable, you'll discover the story behind every featured book, plus fascinating insider talk with the authors. Fable's unique social reading features will let you share your reactions and your thoughts and your favorite quotes with us and your fellow readers and gain access to special resources that you can't find anywhere else. So everybody was reading by the wedding veil, which is so nice. And this week we are switching to our second selection, The Homewreckers by Mary Kay Andrews, known forevermore as just number five. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Visit fable.co backslash friends and fiction to sign up today. 
So a lot of you have asked us about the pricing on this. So Fable as an app is free. You can join some of the free groups on Fable. But if you want to be part of the Friends in Fiction experience, and we hope that you do, I mean, this is something, you know, we put some time into curating it. We, it's it's a very interactive experience with us. Um, that's just $5 a month, which you know, stretched out over the years, about $60, but you could also purchase for just $10 more, a $70 annual membership, which allows you access to all the premium clubs. So it's a kind of, it's a really cool app. Like um, Sean Astin has a premium club, LeVar Burton from Reading Rainbow and Roots has a, a, um, a premium club. It's really cool. So for $70, you can get access to all, or for just $5 a month, you can get access to ours. So we hope lots of you will subscribe and join us on there. It's just another way to experience all this friendship and fiction fun. Um, I already downloaded the app. Have you? Yeah. And I guess everybody has heard that the four of us are on the road together together again. Together. No, I, we have two friends and fiction, two more friends and fiction live events left this season. This is your chance to come see us all together. We are headed to the Jersey Shore this coming Friday, May 20th. That's just two days away. For another fun theater event, this time will be hosted by independent bookstore Booktown in Manasquan, New Jersey. We also have a third event on tap, a luncheon event on July 21st in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And we hope you can join us on the road at one of these big Friends in Fiction Live celebrations. We're so excited to meet with so many of you in, per in person. And we will have those autographed tour posters for sale in New Jersey this week. We had a little printing error that kept us from selling them in Cleveland. So we're so sorry. But our reprint has landed. So get yours hot off the press on the Jersey Shore. That's awesome. All right. And don't forget, as you know, we continue to encourage you to support independent booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our own friendsandfictionbookshop.org page, where you can find Laura's books, Nancy's books, and books by the four of us and our past guests at a discount. Okay. Now's the fun part. Now we get to welcome our guest, Laura Dave. Laura is the number one New York Times bestselling author, author of The Last Thing He Told Me and other novels, including 800 Grapes and The First Husband. Her fiction and essays have been published in The New York Times, ESPN, Red Book, Glamour, and Ladies Home Journal. Dubbed a wry observer of modern love by USA Today, Laura was named a fun and fearless phenom of the year. I did that without tripping over my words. By Cosmopolitan. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it is, I know. By Cosmopolitan magazine, and her work has been published in over 30 countries. Several of her novels have been optioned for film and television, and Laura is adapting her novel, The Last Thing He Told Me, which was a Reese's Book Club pick for Hello Sunshine and Apple, and we cannot wait. I know. Don't <laughs> think we're not talking about that. So Laura currently resides in Santa Monica, California, and the paperback version of The Last Thing He Told Me is going to be released. Sean, could you please bring Laura on? Hi. Hi, Laura. Hi, Laura. Hi, it's so nice to see you all. And I was um, clapping from uh, backstage on number five. So well-deserved. Yeah, <laughs> we agree. Well, welcome, Laura. We have been talking about having you on. We've been trying to get you on. We're so excited to have you on with us. But before we get into a deep dive, I want you to tell everyone out there what your book is about and then our favorite, what it's really about. <laughs> I like that. Um, well, my book is um, about um, a woman. Well, I have the mug, so I can hold it. Oh, nice. <laughs> I want that mug. It, I mean, I, I know I love the mug because, uh, oh, you can have a mug. If you'd like a mug, I'll send you a mug. I'll be, I'll be like a mug. Um, uh, the mug is great because it goes from morning to night, and then no one knows what's inside of it. So that we're not going to ask you what's inside of it either. Just so you can have your privacy. <laughs> um, but the book is really about this woman, Hannah Hall, who um, finds herself living um, her dream life. She's newly married to um, a man, Owen Michaels, who she really has. She has not settled. She married him um, on the later side. She is around 40 and she's newly married to him. 
Um, and he has a 16 year old daughter who um, is not particularly interested in her. But despite that, they're doing quite well. She moved to their community in Sausalito, a floating home community. Um, and they're going about their lives. She's an artisan. She's a wood turner. And um, she thinks they're going about their lives, I should say, until she wakes up and finds out that her husband's tech firm is involved, embroiled, I should say, in a financial scandal. And he has disappeared, leaving in his wake just a note, protect her. Um, and that is all she has to go on. That and a 16-year-old stepdaughter who wants very little to do with her. And together they try to unravel the mystery as to where Owen is and who he actually is together. And what's it really about? What it's really about, and I started writing it in 2012, so I should probably have it figured out by now. <laughs> um, but, um, I think it's really about the primal story of the way someone becomes a mother. Um, Ooh, all the different iterations of how that might happen. Oh, I love that. Oh, and Laura, it's just such a well-done book. We were saying before we went on the air, um, that uh, a few of us have listened to it on audiobook while on book tour. So it's just one of those, um, you know, when your mind is spinning and you're on book tour, you've got so many things that you're thinking about. You need something that you can really fall into and focus on. And this was, I, I mean, this did it for me. This kept me company for several long days on the road. I really loved it. Um, so Laura, there are so many themes that are important for Hannah Hall from motherhood, as you said, to love, to art. But can you talk to us about the original seed of the idea? This is a little bit different than what you've done in the past. It's definitely, definitely is. The original seed, um, and this maybe is comforting to anyone who's like all of us on this call find ourselves um, working on a book for a long time. The original seed was all the way back in 2003. So oh I was really thinking wow. about this book for 19 years oh, um, from wow. now. Um, but I watched an interview with Linda Lay, um, Kenneth Lay's wife, who, um, oh. as a reminder, since it was so long ago, was the CEO of Enron. And right after that scandal broke, she gave an interview um, on the Today Show in which she said, my husband's done nothing wrong. And that immediately penetrated for me. And I thought, yeah, leaving aside whether um, she meant that or didn't mean that, or, you know, I don't, I don't know her, obviously. Um, I started to imagine a woman who did find herself in a situation where um, there was a paradox going on between who she knew her husband had to be based on her inner belief in him and who the world was telling her he was. Oh, wow. And I started thinking about that. And simultaneously, at that moment um, in time, I watched a second interview in which um, uh, Reese Witherspoon, actually, funny enough, <laughs> quoted Gloria Steinem. Um, and the quote really is something about um, how important it is to for women to watch other women become the hero of their own lives. Mm. And those two things started rattling around for me, which is if I were to really do a deep dive on a woman who found herself in that situation, in that paradox, I would want her to be on a hero's journey because I've seen that done where she's on a victim's journey. So I sort of sat with that for a long time. And it wasn't until 2011 when I got married, um, friends of my husband, good friends of my husband gave us this beautiful woodturn bowl for our wedding present. And until then I knew nothing about woodturning. And I started to think about, um, everything that goes into wood turning. Cause I didn't know, you know, you start with this giant piece of wood, you pick a piece of lumber and you turn it into a blank and you mill it. And then you end up putting it on a lathe and you turn it into this incredible work of art and all the things that go into that, the strength, the perseverance, the faith. And I thought, okay, well, this is a woman who naturally is a hero in her own life in her daily life with her work. And so I wanted to think about that. Um, and how to infuse that character into this scenario, which is sort of how the book was born all the way back then. That's so interesting. And, you know, I I'm wondering, especially because you sat with this book for so long, because this was something that, you know, took so long to form for you. I think that when we write through stuff that 
really speaks to us. We put something into something of ourselves into the books and then maybe we take something away from it also. Um, I'm wondering if this affected the way you live your life at all. Writing with such purpose, a woman who's the hero of her own life, did that impact the way you live? You know, I think it might have, but maybe not in the way one would hope, which is that this <laughs> was so hard. I, yeah. And the first couple of years I was writing it, I had in my mind, I'd never written sort of a mystery before. And I had in my mind the last scene, which is something I'm so interested to hear I would love to hear. And um, meanwhile, I am downloading um, that your your new program immediately because that just sounds amazing. Um, the app. Um, did I say the word oh. right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, but, you know, I think writers write in different ways. And the way I always write is I never know what's going to happen. But because it was yeah. a mystery, I thought I needed to know. And yeah. I had this last scene in my mind, which was constantly driving me down the wrong road because Ooh. the last scene oh. basically directly in opposition to how I ended up ending the book. So the first oh, several wow. years of writing it and wanting her to be a hero, she was on a hero's journey, but it was the wrong hero's journey. And oh. the love story I thought I was telling wasn't the main love story, which was between Hannah and the stepdaughter. So it that. was, it was an exercise in misery. Um, and, <laughs> Isn't um, all of writing. Oh <laughs> this, this really for me almost did me in. And uh, I remember I sent the first draft to my agent who was like, uh, after years of, you know, and she was like, it's, it's just not working. Like, it's not what you think it is. And I put it aside and it ended up writing 800 grapes, which, um, uh, I, I was, you know, a love letter to winemaking, which, um, uh, Kristen, uh, Kristen, I know you understand. I think you have your yes. own love letter to wine. Yes, you're absolutely um, right. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, and that was, and I ended up going back to it. I ended up just trying to but it was it was a wrestling match, really, until I had my son, um, and I in 2016, and I and I realized what it was really about—that primal story of a woman becoming a mother. But also, it was a hero's journey that was different than the hero's journey I thought I was telling. And from that point on, the writing became much, much more joyful um, because I let go of thinking I was writing toward a certain end, and I wrote it almost how I write my other books. And I threw out 60,000 words of the oh, yeah. 80,000 words I had. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, we're glad you did. We all just died yes. just a little. Yes, <laughs> I, know. I know. It's so funny because when I, when I was working on earlier books, um, someone once asked me uh, writing advice, and I always said, writing is what you're willing to throw out. And mm -hmm. I really feel like it was someone knocking on my shoulder being like, you sure about that? Because I <laughs> Do you mean it? Do you really mean words. it? Yeah. yeah. Yikes. Well, there are just so many cool things that we could talk about in this book. You mentioned um, Hannah's job as a wood turner, which is something that, you know, we had discussed that we were really fascinated by. But also the setting of this book. They live in a floating home community in Sausalito, which is such a unique setting that also echoes the metaphors and themes of this novel. So can you talk to us about, you know, the setting for this book and how you came to that decision to set it where you did? I, I really like writing books that exist on the edge of the world in some way, you know, West mm -hmm. County, Montauk, New York, now the floating home community of Sausalito, because I think it requires something so different from its inhabitants, you know, from the community, the dependence on each other, both, it's like this, another paradox, um, you know your neighbors really well and you don't know them at all. And you get to both be anonymous and not anonymous at all in how you exist. Um, and I love learning more about the floating home community and the way it's such an interior world, even though it's on the bay, um, and the way there's 400 floating homes there. Everyone seems to know each other. They're deeply protective of each other. So I have characters here who really needed to hide from an outside force. Um, and it seemed like a really great place to hide in plain sight. So that's sort of how I came. I love that. Um, also, was the shop inspired by anything in real life? No, the shop was more um, my reimagining of the Enron scandal in that in, in, 
in modernizing it in some way as it took me, you know, 12 years to get there um, and, and moving it into the tech world, um, which is near, I thought, okay, if they're going to be in Sausalito, what industry would he be in and how would that manifest itself? Um, but what it has in common with Enron, what it has in common now with several other tech scandals is the hubris at the top to yeah. think you can get away with this. Okay. Now, um, Let's talk about the movie because that's what everybody wants to know about now. <laughs> Laura, I know your husband's a screenwriter and I guess you are too. I know you're writing the screenplay for the last thing he told me and Jennifer Garner, nobody ever heard of her, is starring. She's, like a, she's got brown hair. Yes. Like, yeah. Um, I just know a couple things. I just know, her, I just know her phony cooking show that I love. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, I saw. Yeah, I saw the post with her uh, name, Hannah Hall, on the on the door. Yes. Awesome. When you were writing this, did you did you was screenplay flashing in the back or the front of your mind? You know, it was really nowhere in my mind when I was writing this. And actually, um, uh, a, a bunch of things came together uh, for us to develop this. We're actually in production right now, which explains. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so um, very long, long days um, on set. Um, but so, you know, my, my husband is a screenwriter, so I'm sort of familiar with screenwriting in that world a little bit. Um, but he writes very, very different things. You know, he wrote Spotlight and he worked yeah. on the West Wing. So it's sort of a very diff different world. Um, but this book in so many ways is really an ode to family and found family and love and trust. And it just felt like a natural thing for us to embark upon together. Um, probably wasn't the wisest move to embark on it during uh, quarantine and the pandemic. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it has all worked out and we started shooting at the beginning of May um, and it's going to be a limited series on Apple uh, that comes out early next year. I can't wait. Okay. You talked about family just now. Will you talk about about Bailey, the 16-year-old stepdaughter. Um, several of us here, Patty and I, have both um, raised 16-year-olds, mm -hmm. and we have lived through that eye-rolling, I yeah. hate you, yeah. fuck off. Ooh. <laughs> We've lived through that phase. Yeah. It was so real, it just popped out. Trauma. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's a lot. Your, your, your child is young yet, right? So, but maybe you were that kind of 16 year old. Tell us. You know, so um, I am very lucky to be a, a loving godmother to four teenagers, three of whom live across the street from me. Oh. Um, and so I feel like I have had a window into what it means to be even a really great kid and trying to certify your independence. Yeah. And Bailey, I really have so much empathy for because she's doing it in this really heightened state, which is to say, not only does she have a new stepmother, but we're meeting her after she's left with this new stepmother. So she was kind of cranky to begin with. And now all of a sudden, it has always been her and her single father. And now she's alone with someone who she doesn't know or trust. Um, so I took a lot of what I know from these kids who I love so much and tried to imagine them in a scenario where they don't have the love of their parents, where they don't have the love of my husband and myself and throw them into a situation with somebody new who while well-intentioned is kind of a stranger. Um, yeah. and, and that allowed me to really uh, amp up the anxiety that I think yeah. so many 16 year olds feel. Yeah, I was gripping the steering wheel of the car while we were listening <laughs> to it on audio, reliving. And my, I actually, my granddaughter is almost 13, and we're already getting a taste of that. So. Tweens, yeah. 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 <laughs> but the funny thing is when you listen to it and you hear Bailey acting like that, and, and you've been through it, you're like, oh, yeah, but it's yeah. going to be okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because you've been there and you, I remember... Um, a psychiatrist telling me one time that I don't know if it's true or not, but that the root word for adolescence is disturbance mm -hmm. and that, and that it's like the biggest change in anybody's life yeah. that going through adolescence. And if you can remember that when they're being the eye rolling F bomb 
teenager, maybe <laughs> you can be a little, ride it out a little bit more. So when, oh, when Bailey was acting like that, I was thinking, it's going to be okay. It's going to be yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that. I've never heard that. That's yeah. life changing. I know. Isn't it? To remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Just to take that breath and like step back and be like, okay, they're supposed to be having a rough time. Yeah. They're supposed to let it out on me. I mean, within reason. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah that's so true. So, Laura, all of your novels have had women at the center of the story. And the interior lives of these women are so richly depicted. And I think that, I mean, I, I think that's something we all endeavor to do. Like you just kind of dig deep and see what you can find and, and see what um, what you can put on the page that'll really let readers into your character. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about Hannah as the stepmother. So you talked about the daughter a little bit. Can you talk to us a little bit about Hannah as in her role as the stepmother? And I think partially what I'm curious about, you mentioned you have a child who was born in 2016, you said? Yes. Me, me, me too. So I, oh, I, I also have a son who's sick. Who's, yeah, just turned six. Uh -huh. um, so I, I'm curious, because it's a different dynamic, do you see yourself at all in Hannah as the mother? Like, are there pieces of your mothering experience in Hannah in the book? Well, you know, I think what I really relate to um, with Hannah is, and this is something I hadn't um, really seen. I feel like often in movies when a stepmother is depicted or in television shows, um, she's sort of antagonistic to the daughter and they're yeah. both sort of competing for the father slash husband's uh -huh. love. And what I wanted to suggest here is the one thing both of them were certain of was Owen's love. They were both sure of that. So actually that that triangulation is quite different. It's really someone who just doesn't have the tools. She didn't have a mother herself. And so I think what I relate to is the idea that I think we have this magical idea that someone out there has the tools. And then when you're in it, you realize in different ways, none of us do. And so it's really the process of acknowledgement when you get it wrong and figuring out how to show back up. And so yeah. I want to sort of honor that, that it looks like that for everybody, stepmothers, mothers, um, you know, mother figures, anybody that's really trying to have a positive influence on a child. Um, and so in that way, I really felt for Hannah. I feel like I started in the same position as her, as really desperately wanting to do my best and yeah. learning that you do your best almost by accident on the days when you show up, when it's the last thing you feel capable of doing. Oh, I want to write that. Such down. a good point. Yes, I'm going to have to play that over and over again when I <laughs> when I'm having like that mom self doubt of being a mom of a six year old. It's not easy. Yeah. It reminds me when people ask for writing advice or mom advice, you always want to say the secret is there's no yes. secret, yeah. <laughs> right? You know? Exactly. Your best. Yeah. It's so funny. I mean, that you say that, Patty, because I always think about you know people said to me often said to me before I had my son, you know, or when I was pregnant, I felt like people felt they could come up and say like, oh, well, your writing's going to be in trouble now, or this, everything's <laughs> going to change or whatever. And actually, in some ways, I feel like it helped it because yeah. it actually is the same secret, which is one, that it's no secret, or yeah. two, in that if there is any secret, it's figuring out how to show up for it. You just show up for it like that, that you're going to sit down and some days it's going to work out and some days it's not, but you sit down again, you know, so it's just, it, it makes you more loyal to both. I think they help each other in some ways. It's so it was so interesting that you said that because I had a book that, well, it ended up being my debut novel, but that I started um, and then kind of put aside and wrote a couple of other things. And then my son was born and I came back to it and it was like it opened up this thing inside of me. I don't even really know how to explain it, but it gave me this entirely different perspective and it like made the book work somehow because like I knew all these things that I didn't know before. I don't know. It, it is an interesting, it's interesting how you kind of change, I guess a little bit, but so I want to ask you the question that everyone wants to know the answer to. Is there going to be a sequel? Is there any chance? <laughs> I think maybe I'm writing another <laughs> book now. Um, I'm, I'm working another book now, um, uh, on the off chance my editor is watching, I'm working, I'm working diligently on that. 
Laura is working, editor. She's exactly. so I thought so, when we logged on, she was working when we yes, got here. Exactly. She's typing as we speak, in fact. I can exactly. hear it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I mean, it was so funny. The other day I spoke to her and she's like, How's the book coming? I'm like, I'm literally sitting, I'm literally sitting on a set trying to hold it together, but sure. Yeah. Um, but um, <laughs> uh, um just kidding, I love you, Mercy. Um, so um uh, but I was gonna say that the, the, the sequel, I know what it is now. Like I, I see it, like it's sort of concretized in my mind. Um, so in theory, yes, there is going to be a sequel because I really know what the story is. But in reality, um, it's it's another book away, probably. Yeah. Well, can I can I actually ask a question about that? Did knowing did knowing what the sequel is was that clarified by? working on it as a, um, a television production? Did digging at it from a different angle help you to see the way forward? Yes, I think it did. I, I actually, yeah. because also like that, the combination of that, and uh, I did not realize it's so funny because, you know, I always think about storytelling as like conversation. It's yeah. what you start, but then the reader finishes. And the reaction to the end of the book without ruining the book has been I've avoided it. Can, can you tell? I mean, it's so divisive. Like some people write to me and say like, I, I, it's, I love that ending. And I get some like, I mean, hate mail is strong, but like, you know, how could you do this to me? Like, how could you end here? Like people have really, really strong opinions about it in a way that to me, it felt like once I found it, maybe I wanted to be like, I wrote the other ending. It did not work. I wrote yeah, the yeah. ending that you think you want. And it's not the end of this part of the story. But somehow in the process of interacting with readers about the book in, 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 in conjunction, I should say, with working on the show, I realized that that original end of the book is really the end of the second book. Oh. So I see my bombs. Okay. So, so, you know, at that point it will have been 30 years, <laughs> but you oh know, I knock on wood. Um, you know, I do think I see my way to it now. Wow. That's awesome. That's amazing. It's Laura, encouraging you know, too. Really yeah. encouraging. Yeah. I mean, you've already given us such great tips. The thing you just said about, you know, a book is a conversation between the author and the reader. Mm-hmm. I never thought of it that way. And I've written 30. Um, <laughs> So how about sharing another great writing tip with us? We love hearing it and we really want to peek inside your mind. I I mean, I think that everyone has to figure out what works for them, but I do believe that what you do the first thing every day is sometimes what you are able to pay the most attention to. Um, And so for me personally, I try to have my butt in my seat early in the day and get my writing done before I engage with the rest of my life whenever possible. And different people um, recommend word count. I try to do that, but I feel like I have accomplished something if I am in my chair doing my work um, before I turn on social media, before I turn on email, before I do the you know, 800 other things that are required of all of us. That has been um, how I have managed to, I think, be the most successful with my own work. Um, you know, I wrote a book in graduate school, um, my first novel, and I moved back to New York from Virginia and I spilled water on my computer and I lost the whole thing. Oh, no. That Lord, was- I, I just, my stomach just. <laughs> I know. <laughs> It was really something, but I do in some ways look back and I have a silver lining for that because at that point then I had no safety blanket. So I was working, I had 13 jobs that first year. I was writing for ESPN and tutoring private school kids and doing all the things to sort of make ends meet. But I taught myself that writing always came first by getting up at 5 a.m. every day, writing 5 to 10 and then working. And I think it was so, it's so indelible now in my mind that um, even though I feel like I have a real luxury now in getting to write for a living, I still do that. I still get up every day as though at any time water can land on my computer and that's going to be the only time I have to write. I've stuck with that for all the books. I love that. Wow. That discipline really comes in handy. It, it, yes. I think it does. I think, you know, I, some people say like, do you wait for the muse or do you wait for the inspiration to strike? I mean, I would just be living my life watching Ina Garden. That if I, <laughs> if I was, 
you know, that's my inspiration. I want to go watch her say, how easy is that and move along. So yes, (laughs) that's such good advice though. And I used to be really good about that. And then I got really bad about it for like a few years. And just this week I've been like, okay, till at 10 AM, but I'm not checking anything until 10 AM because you're right. Once you check it, like your day, you're, you're done. Your brain is done. And I'm like, wow, I can write so much when I don't have everything else yes it's shocking i um i listened in the car today i listened to an interview with neil gaiman i mean talk about wild imagination right and he said almost the same thing and about the morning except he does it in the middle of the night or used to but he said what he does and it sounds like you which is he 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 put a rule in place he doesn't have to write but he can't do anything else you don't have to write from five to 10, but you can't do anything oh, yes. else. I like that. And I just like rewound, listen to it again, rewind, listen to it again. Yeah. You don't have to write, but you can't do anything else. Yes. But, and it, at some point you're gonna be bored enough to be like, well, fine. I can may as well write. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Laura, how does that work? I'm curious though, cause we're in the same boat. How does that, and I, I do the same thing. I get up early and write. I, I, I mean, seriously, everything that's coming out of your mouth today, I'm like, yes, yes, me too, me too. Like I, you're clearly my long lost best yes. friend here. But, yes. um, I, it, how, how does that work with having um, having a child the, the same age as the child I have? Do you, I mean, it, 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 I, if your child's anything like mine, there's not a huge amount of respect for mommy's schedules. No, so we're no, on no. whether you like it or not sometimes. Exactly. I mean, he's not being on set. Um, it's been two weeks and it's a rude awakening for him yeah. because he, I come home from work and he's like, did you miss me? Like, especially <laughs> if you're working at home, they're like, yeah. that's not work. Like, what do you, you're in the other room. So it's very, it's, it's a challenge. I have, I have moved it. Either my husband will take him in the morning when my husband can, which is often because he, since he's a screenwriter, it's flexible. And we're lucky that we're on opposite schedules. He likes to write at night. Um, mm-hmm. And so he, he gets freer as the day goes on. So that's been that's a that's lucky. Um, or I take him to school, which is 830. And I do not check email before I take him to school. I I, I, I shift the idea of it. You know, there's a software software called Freedom, which I highly recommend, which like shuts you off from the world. You can't check anything. You know, um, you can't do any of your research. Even if you're like, oh, but I need to know this. You have to wait till after to check wow. that, you know. Okay. Um, so I just shift it to work with his, his school his schedule. schedule. Yep. It doesn't work quite as well, but you know, you make same. that allowance. Yeah. Same thing. Cool. Yeah. I don't feel like the real humans in my morning, like disrupt my focus, like the mm-hmm. internet. Part. Yes, <laughs> it's true. true. There's like some- our text string. Yeah. <laughs> there really is. I find like if I turn social media on, even turn it on, my writing day is over. I don't know. There's something about that energy, that performative. And yeah, all of it is some of, you know, again, we're back to Ina Garden dream. So I'll watch her on social media. But like, you know, there's something about the the inherent performance of the internet, of social media, of all of it that takes me right out. It takes me right out of that vulnerable writing space. Yep. Yeah. Well, are there any books on your nightstand that we might be surprised to find there? Oh my gosh, my nightstand. I, I I would show it to you if it wasn't so terrifying. When I tell you I have like literally, and I'm not exaggerating, maybe 38 books piled on it. It's just, um, for a while I didn't even have a nightstand and it was just the books. Um, but there are, there's probably a bunch that would be surprising. I tend to read a lot of science books. I'm really interested in like science and psychology. Um, uh, I'm honestly, like what you just said, um, about, uh, Kristen, what you just said, uh, oh no, Patty said it, sorry about disturbance is with me forever now. Um, you know, adolescence being disturbance. Um, uh, so some books that are maybe that are surprising that are up there just because they're on the older side. Um, I still have pride and prejudice sitting there because I have books. I reread again and again, heartburn by Nora Ephron is there. Um, uh, Slouching Toward Bethlehem by um, Joan Didion lives on my nightstand. Um, I have, um, uh, right now I have a book called Five Families, which is a book about crime on my nightstand. That might be surprising. Doesn't seem to fit in the uh, zeitgeist of the others. Um, 
Um, what else is on my nightstand right now? Um, the Empire of Pain has been there for a while now. Um, the oh, Sackler wow. Family, which plays into my new book a little bit. Um, so those are some of them. That's awesome. That's awesome. Is there anything that you've read lately that you've just loved? Um, that I've read recently that I just loved. Um, that is such a that is a really good question. Um, oh, I love the Caretakers, um, which just came out. Um, I thought that uh, I think it came out in, in end of March. I th thought that was wonderful. Um, it's a takes place in Paris. Um, can't really beat that. That's no, never. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay, Laura, if you wouldn't mind sticking around for just a few more minutes, please. We have a couple of announcements and then one more thing. Okay. Grace. Have you bought your coffee from Charleston Coffee Roasters yet? Because we have, and everyone in our Friends in Fiction community gets 20% off all bagged coffees on their website with the code Coffee with Friends. Don't forget the fabulous book and coffee bundles that CCR has on off offer as well. Books signed by us and paired with the roast and grind of your choice. We can't think of anything better than that. And don't forget to enter our monthly giveaway. We've got one winner left to announce for the month of May. Our March and April, April winners are already enjoying their coffee. So you can enter to win a three-month Coffee of the Month Club subscription, a $90 value using the entry form shared on our social media and in our newsletter. Good luck. <laughs> and guess what is this week? Besides Mary Kay Andrews hitting number five on the list and having an amazing guest in Laura Dave and Nancy Fair, there's another thing. It is our 50th Writer's Block podcast. 50th. 50th Writer's Block podcast. Yay. So you know this is every Friday, and it's different than the show. Ron Block, our um, librarian rock star, helps host it. A new episode drops every single Friday on the last episode. Ron and I talked to the authors Kelly Stort and Amy Runyon about their new books and about bringing history to life. And this coming week, Ron and Kristen talked to Jane Porter and Jane Crane about being such prolific writers and friendship and community in writing. We were going to hear all of these powerful women talk about their process and their books. Yeah, I've known Meg and Jane for uh, about almost 20 years now. And I think Megan has just completed her 130th novel. Um, oh, dear Lord. And, yeah. And she's like, she's about my age. Um, so oh. I feel really about myself. But um, yeah, they're amazing. It was fun a podcast. So I, I hope you tune into that. We know many of you have been participating in our very first Friends of Fiction Reading Challenge. So this month for May, we are encouraging you to dive into a beach read. And if you're looking for a way to keep track of these books and your other reading, we would love to recommend our beautiful reading journal at Oxford Exchange. It has a gorgeous Friends in Fiction blue linen cover and plenty of space to record your thoughts on what you're reading. So we love seeing your posts on the page. And um, do you know what makes a really good beach read? Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> it does. So good. Thank you, Kristen. The text in the mail. Um, <laughs> the Friends and Official Book Club also is having a great blast. If you're not there, you're missing out. The group, and they are separate from us and are run by our friends, Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner. They're nearly 12,000 strong now. And hopefully, you'll join me live on their page on June 20th, when we will be discussing my new novel, The Homewreckers. <laughs> okay, and then next week, right here at 7 p.m. on Wednesday night, we will welcome Tia Williams with her newest Seven Days in June, which was a Reese pet. I think I know someone else who was a Reese pet. Laura Dave and TJ Newman, whose debut Falling exploded onto the scene a few months ago. So if you're ever wondering about our schedule, you know where to find it on the Friends and Fiction website and on the header graphic on our Facebook page. We're not done. We still have more to talk about. And don't forget that Nancy Thayer is joining us in the after show. All right. But before we get to Nancy, we want to ask Laura one more question. So, Laura, we always like to ask, what were the values around reading and writing when you were growing up? Um, it was everything in my house. So... I would read every night with my dad when he'd get home from work. I loved books from the time I was so little. I remember one of the first books they they one of the first books they got me, Penelope Penelope Gets Wheels, which I have been looking for forever. It's out of print. I cannot find oh, it. Um, I 
this on a podcast and a reader found it and sent it to me. So here's hoping really happens for you. Yes. I love that book so much. It wasn't that book. It was a different book, but I said that same thing. Yes. No, I'm very, she, she wants a bike and she gets roller skates. I just loved it. But so I, that was everything in my house, storytelling, reading. Um, So there were, I, I really have always learned to understand the world in that way. I just loved it. Always. That's awesome. We love to ask that because, um, Knowing how authors come to the thing that they do, I don't think we've talked to anybody. If somebody can remember someone we've talked to who hasn't said that books were like a lifeblood to them yeah. when they were a kid, whether their parents gave them to them or not, they were they that in libraries seemed to be such a theme. So I, I'd love to hear that. Laura, thank you so much for spending time thank with us for Laura. talking about motherhood and process and being the hero of your own life, which is going to echo in my head for a little while. And I think there was so much hope in you telling us, uh, you know, here, here you are with this, this phenomenal blockbuster about to be a show and you're saying you couldn't find your way through it and had to put it down and start another one. And thank you for sharing all of that with us. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I'm going to have to tune in next week. I met uh, TJ actually at a store, coincidentally. We were both signing books. And oh, she, awesome. she's the loveliest. So she is. Um, yeah, everyone, up. you guys are going to love her. And that book's really great. That's awesome. You're Thanks, so Laura. Thank Hi, you. Laura. Thank Thanks, you, Laura. Laura. for having me. This was the highlight of my day. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> compared to your being on the set of your TV show? We don't believe it, but that's nice. We don't believe it. <laughs> I'm heading back into the other room to watch another episode of Nailed It. I'm, I promise you this is the highlight. Okay, we win. We win. We win. Laura, you're awesome. You're awesome. Thanks, Thanks Laura. Bye. Okay, now everyone, make sure to stay for our after show with Nancy Fair. And don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube because we live there every single week. <laughs> just like on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you won't miss a thing. Plus, be sure to come back next week, same time, same place, as we welcome Tia and TJ. That was, I could talk to her for an hour, right? I loved her, yeah. I think we need to have a watch party when- Yeah! Yeah. We sure do. I meant to say that before she got off. Like, we all need to, like, gather and then- I can't wait to see how much of it lines up with yeah. the book since we since we all love the book. But now we want to welcome Nancy Thayer. Nancy is the New York Times bestselling author of over 30 novels, just like our MKA, including <laughs> Summer House, Beachcombers, Island Girls, The Guest Cottage. She's amazing. She is. And she's a friend to all of us. Her novels often center around the mysteries and romance of families and relationships. And her work has been translated into countless languages. Sometimes we even see our names or friends and fiction <laughs> authors, Easter eggs in her books. Love Nancy's it. novels have also been condensed or excerpted. See, now there's a word, Patty. That's a tough one. Excerpted. That was good. Did you see I didn't give it to myself? <laughs> <laughs> I gave it to you. You're like, I'm going to put that on somebody else. Good I'm giving, no, not just somebody else, you. Me. <laughs> <laughs> In several literary reviews and magazines, including Red Book and Good Housekeeping. In 2015, she was awarded the Romantic Times Career Achievement Award for Mainstream Fiction. Nancy has a BA and MA in English Literature from the University of Missouri at Kansas City. She has lived on Nantucket Island year-round for 33 years. Poor Nancy. With her husband (laughs) and her daughter is the novelist Samantha Wilde. Sean, let's bring her on. Hey, Hi, Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Great Good. to see you. Good. Oh, are you on Nantucket right now? Of course. Yes. Oh, we're so envious. Yeah. Welcome, Nancy. We're so happy to have you here to talk about summer love. Can you sing summer loving for us? <laughs> no, no. We're not going to make you do that. We're not going to make you. you do that. We're going to make Kristen do that. Um, yes. Good. <laughs> uh, we're so happy to have you. Before we get taking a deeper dive, we want you to tell everybody what summer love is about. And then there's an added thing to it. We want you to tell us what it's really about. <laughs> Can you hear us? 
Oh, I can hear you. Yes. Okay. Can you tell us what it's about and then oh, what it's really about? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh. Um, Summer Love is about four people who come to Nantucket in 1995. They've graduated from college and they all have these dreams of what they're going to be. And um, then they come back in 2020 and have a reunion. And we see how their lives worked out. And they bring, some of them bring their children. So it really is about people coming to Nantucket to work when they're no longer teenagers. Because mm. I always thought, because I was a teenager, I've had teenagers, um, that you can make a lot of mistakes when you're a yeah. teenager. But I assume by the time you're 20 or 21, you're an adult and, and you don't make those mistakes. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that's not true. Um, mm. I made some mistakes. My children made mistakes. Um, I'm fortunate because my life turned out the way I wanted it to be. I, I'm a writer. Um, but I look at my two children who are 45. So it was, this is what is behind the book. And when they were young, I, I had a feeling Josh would always do computer work. And he has. But I thought my daughter would be a lawyer because she was so good at arguing. And, uh, <laughs> all our kids should be lawyers. <laughs> but at her graduation, she told us she was going to Yale Divinity School. Wow. And, wow. Yeah. We've, and then she also went to Kripalu, and she's a certified yoga teacher, and she lives on a farm, and she has five children, and now she has three dwarf goats. Oh. And, <laughs> so all of this and what happens to their friends uh, or what has been happening to their friends made me think of of how I wanted to show <clears throat> how it is when you're in your 20s and you think you've got it down. You think the yeah. hormones have sort of relaxed <laughs> and you know what you're going to do. You've made it through college. Um, and then and then what happens? So that was the background and, and that's what happens in Summer Love. The other thing is that Nantucket is a place that people love to come to. When they come here, they want to be here. It's not like they're going to the hospital or, <laughs> or into um, a rehab or, or, or to work as what? Anybody in an apartment, not an apartment, a a skyscraper in New York. That seems to me not what I would like to do. I know a lot of people like to do that, but I think with COVID, we've learned a lot of people like yeah. to be in their homes. Yeah. Okay, Nancy, now Summer Love is a reunion story. Who doesn't love a reunion story? No. Everybody yeah. loves a reunion story. And your last book was a family reunion, but this one is about old friends and their kids and all the different ways facing who they are and what they wanted in two different generations. Was there, you talked about your daughter turning your expectations upside down when she decided to go to divinity school. Okay, but would you tell us if you have any idea, what was the seed for this story for Summer Love? Was there one thing, one thought, one, one um, action that made you think this is what I'll write? Well, first of all, MKA, Hooray for you. I'm so excited. I'm so proud of you. Thank I, you I, it's wonderful that number five on the bestseller list. And I don't, I have the book, but I haven't started reading it yet. I want to sort of get into 
a period of time when I can not be interrupted. Um, and all the rest of you, you all know I love your books. Um, and We love and, yours. And I love your organization. I think it has changed the world for writers. Thank and you. it makes us all much more integrated and and communicative and sharing things. So hooray for that. Thank um, you. Thank you. The Seed for Summer Love was probably, um, it probably took place at the beginning of last summer or the summer before that, because even with COVID, we had our, our children and their grandchildren come visit. Um, our, we rent a house for our daughter and her husband, and we call them the thousands of children because there's always a baby crying. Um, and, uh, but then we all get together. We have meals here. Um, and Josh comes with his partner, David. They've been together for 20 years. And he knows everything about technology. Um, and, and my daughter Sam's best friend came the year before last with her husband and her son, who was 15. And I met Sarah when my daughter and Sarah were five years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so now they're 45. And I've, I've seen how yeah. their lives have changed. And I just steal shamelessly from my children. <laughs> <laughs> I always, oh, that's awesome. I always that's awesome. So great. Well, Nancy, we know you live in Nantucket and that you absolutely love it. And you touched on this a little bit um, about, you know, just being a place where people want to be, which is so true. But what is it about Nantucket that is so special to you? Like, what is the magic of Nantucket? And why did you choose to set this book there? I came here about 39 years ago to meet a friend. I'd never been to Nantucket. And I met a man named Charlie Walters. Who I met that man. I don't know where this story is going. He had a record store, but he also had um, a television show. And he used to write for Rolling Stone, and I was nervous about meeting this cool guy. But he's really, really nice. And uh, when he interviewed me, uh, I might have told you all this before, but we have it on tape. Uh, so nice. remember, this was 39 years ago. And he said on tape, he, microphone, uh, do you consider yourself a woman's writer? And if anybody else had asked that, I would have answered differently. But when he said that, I said, well, you well I am a woman, you know. Oh. <laughs> and, and then we sat up talking all night, just talking. And, <laughs> Clarifying. Clarifying. And then we got married two years later. Oh. So one of the magic things about this island is that it's isolated. There's a community here, yeah. but there are all kinds of people here. There are natives whose parents founded the town. There are, now there are so many, I don't know why there are so many billionaires in the world, but there's suddenly a lot of billionaires who are just buying everything here. There are the people who come to work for the billionaires. Um, and still, the town itself is very small. I know uh, Mary Kay has been here. She was here last year, I think it was. So she knows it's just a small town. It hasn't changed. It has several wharfs that you can walk out on and you can look out in the distance and see the lighthouse and the ocean or the sound. And the whole the whole sense of being free away from your normal life in a yeah. place of such beauty 
on the beach, taking a deep breath. And I do believe that the ocean, that the waves, that the ocean gives us energy and inspiration. And I've even read that scientists say that there are ions yeah. that I don't know what they are, but they help us feel better and they come from the ocean. I think I think the beauty of the town and the small town feeling are what make it magic. But things are always changing, which is what I wanted to show in Summer Love. Uh, yeah. It starts off in a in a hotel that is the the remnant of two hotels before it because our cultures go through changes. Yeah. It was called the Nantucket Palace, which which is just not Nantucket. We, we don't have any buildings over three stories high. We just don't. And so you wouldn't really have a palace. And then it got sold to somebody who called it Rotters, which was when, I suppose, in the 80s, when you were supposed to be cool and have <laughs> um, and a safety pin in your eyebrow. Um, <laughs> I skipped that. I totally skipped that. I, yeah, I, skipped that. I somehow missed that. Yeah. <laughs> and then it starts right when there is both I guess it's going to become rockers and nothing is left except the basement, which has four bedrooms and one bathroom. My husband had his, his record store and they really were records. And every summer he had people come apply for a job mm -hmm. and the first question he would ask was, do you have um, So I started off with my four people having housing, but they, they're staying in this basement of a place that is both being demolished and restored. Oh, that's wow. a great metaphor. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So, so Nancy, I love how this book explores the potential of, um, of the dreams we had as our younger selves. And mm -hmm. you kind of dive deep into how these characters re-examine those dreams and secrets, especially Ariel, the writer. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to us about this, the theme of dreams and secrets in this novel and kind of how um, how they've evolved over time. In other words, did you decide ahead of time that that was going to be sort of um, something at the center of this, or did those themes arise as you as you wrote, as you worked? I think I pretty much knew what was going to happen with three of the characters, okay. because Nick, who ends up buying the hotel, he he's such a strong personality. He starts out strong. He has ambition. He wants to do big things. And what I've noticed here on Nantucket with my daughter and her husband and Josh and his husband and all the people I've seen grow up, a lot of us get to have our dreams come true. Yeah. A lot of us, if we want to be a doctor or an architect, we get to do that. So I wanted to write about people whose dreams really do come true. That was, that was first in my thinking. Um, she, who is from the middle, was different, and, um, and she what I think a lot of us do, which is that the beautiful people think she's as good as they are. And uh, she meets somebody, she falls in love with an older man. That happens 
all the time, Nantucket. Summer, everybody, that's the other thing. In summer, everybody falls yeah. in love. And then in the fall. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think the one person who whose dream eventually came true is Ariel. And she's a lot like I was in that when she was young, she knew she wanted to be a writer. She married a professor. I married a professor when I was 20. So he was 36, I was 20. He had two ex-wives. I thought this was really cool because I was 20. It is. It was it was very funny. Um, <laughs> and and we had two children. And I think when I had the children, I got serious about writing. I thought, oh, now I know what I want to write about. I want to write about how hard it is to be a family, how hard it is if your child gets sick, how, how hard it is if, if they aren't, you know, they send a child off to kindergarten or preschool. You're just, is anybody going to talk to them? Um, I, I have always felt that sense of, of wanting people to be happy, to have their dreams come true. That is, that's no, absolutely that's that powerful. Yes. That's powerful. Yes. That answers what it's, what your writing is about. Oh, yeah. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. What an absolute joy to have you on and to watch your success and to see, like reading one of your books set in Nantucket is like being there. You, yeah. you're awesome. And I know we share a literary agent, so later we can talk about how much we love our Meg Rooley. Um, yeah, we can exchange secrets. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then it was another one of her clients, I think it was Susan Wiggs who said, um, oh yeah, she never talks about her other clients. She's like a, a Mormon husband. We don't get to hear about, we don't get to hear about the other wives. But she does talk so wonderfully about you, Nancy. So thank you for joining us. And Thanks, Nancy. Thank, thank you. Nancy. And thank good night, you. everyone. And we will see you next week with Tia Williams and TJ Noonan. And peace out. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.